Today's show is brought to you by AdamandEve.com. Go to AdamandEve.com right now and you'll get 50% off just about any item. All you have to do is enter the code word GLORY, G-L-O-R-Y, at checkout. Be advised that this show is not for children, the faint of heart, or the easily offended. The explicit tag is there for a reason. Recording live from Glory Hole Studios in Chicago and beyond, this is Cognitive Dissonance. Every episode we blast anyone who gets in our way. We bring critical thinking, skepticism, and irreverence to any topic that makes the news, makes it big, or makes us mad. It's skeptical, it's political, and there is no welcome mad. This is episode 646 of Cognitive Dissonance, and we are joined this episode once again by longtime favorite Aaron Robbie Rabinowitz. I believe he prefers Robbie. It's like, I think that's what he told me in the beginning. Uh, he is the co-host of, uh, or host, I don't know. He's on Embrace the Void, Philosophers in Space. He's a monthly columnist for the UK Skeptic, not to be confused with the U.S. version of Skeptic, which is gross and nobody should read nobody that. Should I don't think that. anyone does, though. No, I don't so, think so. I don't think yeah, so. Yeah. That's pretty much nothing. Well, Jonathan Hate May. Jonathan so. Hate May. <laughs> he may. We'll find out. Probably. Yeah, probably does. I'm probably sure he does. considers it a respectable source of information. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome again to the yeah. show, Aaron. Thanks for coming on. Hey, excited to diss some more cogs. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so we wanted to have you on because Tom and I had read this article called After Babel, why the last 10 years have been uniquely stupid. It was written by Jonathan Haidt, uh, who we had no idea really who he was. So we had read, Tom and I had both read a book. I read it first. Uh, yeah, I'll write you mind. Me onto it. Yeah. And then I said, Tom, you should read this book. It's an interesting book. Interesting way to think about how we, how we decide uh, what's moral and what's not moral. It's an interesting bit of moral psychology, um, may or may not be true, but it, it, it's uh, sometimes very much feels like it's true. So, uh, but I'm not smart enough to know whether it's true or not. And then, so we listened to it together. We talked about it. We both seemed to like it quite a bit. And then I came across this article in the, in the Atlantic, sent it to Tom. Tom liked it quite a bit as well, because it. it really does resonate with both of us with how social media has really face fucked the entire earth. And so <laughs> where we're at right now is, you know, Tom and I are both, you know, we're both sort of on the same train. I think Tom's a little farther down the track than I am, but not much farther. And we thought, you know, what's a good counterpoint? Who could we bring in here? Who's maybe more high on the internet, more high on social media, somebody who does have critical thoughts about it, but doesn't really feel as, <laughs> as doom and gloom as Tom. And, yeah. I do. and so we thought, why don't we bring Aaron in and see what he thinks? And as soon as we brought up, you're like, Oh, that fucking guy. So, <laughs> so yeah, we had these like extended back and forths. On like we're chat, we're chatting on Messenger guys and we're like and we're having these like back and forth where we find out like this author who we knew nothing about we didn't know right? anything about and him. that's that's a topic that actually we will discuss as part of this and I guess he's a complete shit yeah and and so I I know that we want well. to talk about that oh he's a partial shit <laughs> he's a partial he at least, shit he may be shit adjacent yeah 
And I and I and yeah. I know that that's going to be an interesting views, in my opinion. Yeah. So we want to start out today by talking a little bit about the book The Righteous Mind. Now, if if anybody who's listening hasn't listened or read The Righteous Mind, the concept is pretty simple. The idea is is that um, we very much pay attention to our social circles to. Uh, to sort of figure out where our morality is. And in his, his idea is really most of our morality is virtue signaling. We're doing this to, for the rest of the group to sort of say we are moral. And, you know, he's, he, uh, Tom and I actually, we were talking about this earlier. We, we seriously bonded and, and really met yeah. uh, over reading philosophy together later when we were both in college. And we read, funny enough, moral philosophy, the grounding for the metaphysics of morals. And that is a, a book too, that really talks about this as a way to say the only real true moral action you can do is if it's not virtue signaling, if you're not, right. if you're doing something that's completely outside of your, of what is, uh, what is advantageous mm -hmm. for you, right. then that is the only way to do a true moral thing. So it's funny. We so, it, it, it goes all yeah. the way back. Go ahead. No, if you got a critique of that, go ahead. Well, to be fair, there are Kantian emotivists. There are Kantian virtue signalers who think that actually ethics is both what Kant says and also like the, the virtue signaling. But like we, we should be careful about using terms like virtue signaling because it can mean a pejorative thing or a neutral thing, right? Like there's a, a, a pro-social behavior that everybody likes, which is signaling your virtue by doing good things, right? And then yeah. there's this like potentially bad thing where people like over signal their virtues in some ways or signal virtues they don't actually have or something like that, pay lip service right. in this kind of way, right? And we want to be careful because I think people slide back and forth between those two concepts too easily. And it's um, it, it gives the impression that humans are worst ethical reasoners than I think we actually are. So it, would another so way to pin in that. would another way to say the same thing and, and still be true to like hates, uh, I guess thesis is that um, in in his thesis, a lot of moral behavior revolves around your position within a certain in group and that it it, right. it, it validates your position as part of an in group, um, often politically mm -hmm. and frequently socially. Yes. And let me, so let me, let me front load the concern to help you like explain why I'm, why I'm putting a pin in this is because, um, there's a large debate, very broad debate across multiple spheres about whether human beings are fundamentally either individually or as groups, reasonable or rational entities. Okay. Right. So there's a bunch of different theories in one camp that are going to say that human beings, either individually or as groups, are irrational or or not reasonable. They're not acting via the kind of reasoning that they like to think they're acting via. Or there's going to be the other camp where we're going to say actually they are reasonable, contra. I think conventional wisdom these days would say that we're not reasonable creatures. Um, but I think there is good point. There was essentially like a movement sort of critiquing the idea that humans were rational. And then there's been sort of a shift back, I think, towards, well, wait a minute, I think we overcorrected too much towards the idea that like, we're nothing but just cognitive biases all the way down kind of positions. And I think Haidt's view, his moral intuitionism uh, slides a little bit too much towards 
sort of seeing us as bad moral reasoners. I'm also a moral intuitionist, but I think we tend to be more reliable and partly reliable because we are social reasoners. So right, being a social reasoner doesn't necessarily make you an unreliable reasoner. That's an important note, right? Like we all interact with each with our social circles when we try to understand ethics. But that makes us better at understanding ethics, not worse, I think. Can you explain to me what you mean by social reasoners? Yeah. So the idea would be you have these two kind of models of how human beings reason. You have the individual reasoner, like the Cartesian, go sit in your office and sit in a big chair next to a fire and cogitate on what are, what is like the true nature of the universe by yourself. And then there's the like, go out in the world, interact with other people, have arguments with them, have you know, conversations with them, be pressured by their social cues, et cetera. And that like, that is the better environment in which to gain real understanding. So social epistemologists are ones who will argue that that is either our natural way of, or our evolved way or the best way. There are lots of different ways you could frame this, but something along those lines. Essentially, like yes, ending Height's view of social moral epistemology but saying, and that's fine. It's a good thing. It actually has driven us towards better moral views or something like that. So one other thing that I want to just, at the outset, one other question I wanted to ask you specifically kind of to mm-hmm. help me understand or frame this conversation we're going to have is, I don't know that I fully understand, although I have, a, I guess, an intuitive grasp. But can what do you think the difference is between moral psychology which is, I think, the directionality that hate purports to come from and moral philosophy, which is what we touched on briefly with respect to Kant. Really, really great question. I think it's a really important. Thank you very much. I thought so too. Yeah, Yeah. great question. I I don't ask any great questions. He's never said that to me, Tom. No, it's fine. Go ahead. No, it's fine. Go. No, it's cool. I know. I know. It's. I know. It's cliche to respond. (laughs) I won't. I won't say it that way ever again. But like, I, I literally was like thinking. You know, <laughs> oh, we should we should really make this distinction, and then you ask that question. So, like, I have to give you credit. Like, absolutely, that was yeah. mind absolutely. You do have to give me credit. Uh, I, I, go, if yeah. you didn't, I was going to actually tell myself. I was going to be like, you know, and that I want to point out really that that was a great question. I, to say, I just want everyone right, to know. All right, all right, all right. Yes, yes. You made fun of me. We love you, buddy. You're great. You're great, and I love you. It's a really important question because I think. It's, and a, a it's great important one. to understand that Haidt, <laughs> that Haidt is a moral psychologist. And when he does moral psychology, he's pretty decent. And when he does moral philosophy, he's bad, in my opinion, on like multiple levels. So like one way to understand this distinction would be like the descriptive versus prescriptive distinction, right? Moral psychology is just trying to describe how humans think about morality. It's trying to look at us and say, what are we really doing when we're doing moral reasoning? Are we, are we just rationalizing after the fact? Are we actually motivating our behavior by figuring out what we think is the right thing? Uh, that, those sorts of questions, right? So his moral foundations theory that we're going to talk about is moral psychology in the sense that it is just describing the, all of the different ways that you know, human beings think about moral foundations. Um, Moral philosophy is in theory, well, so I, I, I'm saying all this and then I'm going to say, but, right, obviously, because I'm a philosopher, so I have to contradict everything I say, right? <laughs> Moral philosophy is in theory more prescriptive, right? It is telling you what you should believe about things, right? What you ought to do. Um, 
and, and then, of course, the but is there are people in both camps who will say, actually, we should be doing the other thing. And the reality is it's a giant, messy clusterfuck because what we ought to do is, in, is impacted by our moral psychology and our moral psychology can be shaped by what we ought to do. So you have a hideous feedback loop between all of this shit. Like, so it makes it a giant mess. Um, so there's no, there's no like stay in your lane solution to any of this. There's no like, I'm just going to do psychology and you can just do philosophy. We have to do them together. I just think that in particular, for various reasons, height is not especially good at making the jump from descriptive analysis to prescriptions about what we ought to do or what actually is good or even how moral philosophy works. I think his account of pluralism is wrong. Like it's just a bad account of pluralism. So yeah. I want to get back help? on I, <laughs> yeah. I want to get back on track just a second because I, I I there's another big part of the book that's really important and that part is really sort of it's it's leaning toward what you you sort of alluded to earlier is that Moral intuition is what leads us and our rational mind makes up excuses for why we believe the things we do after the fact. He uses a metaphor of an elephant deciding where it wants to go. That elephant is the moral intuition and the uh, after the fact post hoc reasoning is our, our the rider, what he calls the rider. That's our rational mind trying to decide why we think the way we do. Why are we revulsed by this particular example? Why do yeah. we think it's wrong? <laughs> why do we think it's right? Um, and, and his, the whole, the whole argument of the whole book is that everyone is being drug around by this intuition, their whole life, this moral intuition. And then we spend our time sort of as our own politicians, as our own press secretaries, trying to tell everyone why we think and why we believe these are the right and important things to either be revulsed yep. by or to think are moral, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I would add too that the book spends a lot of time on a concept that I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about afterwards, which is that disgust itself is a primary driver for understanding our moral yes. responsiveness. Yes. Good point. And that's that's he spends a lot of time on it. And there's a yeah. lot. He, he includes a lot of research on that, which, as a non-research guy, I found yeah. initially very compelling and very interesting. And also, to and and I would throw this in the garbage can, but say it out loud. It 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 felt intuitively accurate. Yeah. Okay. So lots of things there, right? First, we, like we keep using the word intuition and I, I've discovered that some folks don't even, that, that is not a common term for a lot of people. So I think we should back up and say like intuition is this kind of pre-reflective thinking that individuals do. And, and so like at every level of this, there can be degrees of kind of pessimism about our ability to be good moral reasoners, right? Like, Overall, he's making an argument that I think is leaning very pessimistically in the sense that, you know, we're the tiny little rider and our intuitions are this giant elephant. And his view of intuitions is fairly pessimistic in the sense that he thinks this is emotional, social driven thinking and that makes it unreliable. But that's like a questionable theory, right? Like I think you could argue that that like intuitions are actually can be can be reliable, that like moral intuitions are a useful source of understanding, and that like there's a there's a weaker version of this that just is 
a more, more, more about persuasion, which is to say you have to placate the elephant before you can talk to the rider. So like the rider, so like this is a question of like how much is the rider just post hoc rationalization or is the rider actually making the calls, but only when the elephant is happy? So that's one way to read this. And I think that's a plausible reading that like you're a better moral reasoner when you're not, I think, being sort of short-circuited in certain ways. But it's also true that sometimes your fast moral reasoning can be better than your slow moral reasoning. So I, I think that like he, there's, there's a lot of actual complexities to um, how, we, how we should approach this intuitionism, even if it is the case that in general, we are these kinds of, social reasoners. One thing too that I think is interesting is that it doesn't account for you changing your mind about moral reasoning. It seems to think like like you're driven by this intuition and that intuition feels sort of it's it feels very stable. Right. It doesn't feel like a thing that can move or mm -hmm. can change very much. And when he's talking about it, it feels like you just you, you make these decisions, but I used to I used to think I used to be pro life. Like I used to be right. a conservative. Like I, these are things right. that I very much believed in that I don't believe in anymore because I thought about them. And I think he he doesn't give enough credit to those things because I think those are moral positions. Like, yeah. you know, like, and so I think yeah. he doesn't give enough credit to that. I, I, I would add to that that one of the things that I did think about when I was thinking about the, the revulsion, the disgust concept, it, it did ring intuitively true, but it rings intuitively true to me on on that sort of, initial gut level. And I thought like, all right, well, yeah. it, it, like the heuristics that we develop, we develop, I think from a variety of different like input methods, some of which are thoughtful, some of which are disgust oriented, some of yeah, which are yeah. like uh, maybe innately sort of things that we are tuned or attuned to. But like, Mm -hmm. those like heuristics I think are, are more broadly complicated than I felt like was, was credited in the book. And so to your point, Aaron, right. about like, are those gut into it, intuitive heuristics, are they accurate or inaccurate in terms of like leading us toward like morally, like right answers? I, I think like that, that answer is also complicated by like, what are the inputs that create those heuristics in the first place. And, and how do you, how do you like pull that shit apart? Like, I mean, like, I don't know yeah. from, from your comment before, like, I don't know that there's like a reasonable distinction in terms of practicality between moral psychology and moral philosophy, because I don't, I cannot possibly imagine probably because I'm not smart enough, how you could separate them in a disciplinary way that still had rigor. I think what you want to do is separate, making sure it's clear when you're saying, here's how I think people reason and here's how I think they should reason, right? You have to study both in conjunction, but like in your work, you want to make sure that it's clear when you're doing one versus the other. And I think this discussed thing is is really important to focus on as, as like a, a way to critique. Like when I said that like height, I think is doing what he wants to do poorly. Like, I think that he doesn't, he doesn't um, take pluralism seriously enough and his moral foundations theory kind of suffers for it. So should we maybe unpack, I guess, those things for yeah, a second? Sure, and then sure, explain, yeah, sure, Go ahead. Explain the disgust thing. Yeah, so, so moral foundations theory, which is the stuff that I teach when I teach. So I teach intro to ethics, I teach philosophy, but I teach this in the class because as you say, it's, it's unavoidable. You can't have it as part of your system. If for no other reason than you need to know how to persuade other people if you're going to try to 
make moral progress in the world. And I do think he's on to part of a persuasion point, if not a further moral point. So moral foundations theory is basically the idea that human moral reasoning involves individuals um, combining several moral foundations, which are themselves in tension, and the different ways that they balance those tensions, the different ways they combine them, produces the different kinds of societies and behaviors and personalities that we see in the world. So the examples that are most commonly used are things like care versus harm, and they're, they're put as fairness, but like the basic idea is, you know, you, you, you value caring, you value fairness, you value loyalty, authority, sanctity, or purity, and liberty. Those are the ones that, that often get used. Um, and like the, this gets applied to politics by Haidt, where he argues that the difference between liberals and conservatives, and he gets a little essentialist about it, going back to your point about like, how do you change minds? He kind of sort of suggests at some points that like, you're just born a liberal, and like, you're just gonna, <laughs> you're likely to just end up a liberal in that kind of way, or you're born a conservative, you're, like, you're born yeah. with different amounts of fear reactions and those drive what your moral, what moral foundations you yeah, prioritize. Yeah, he does say that, yeah. yeah. And there, there is a little bit to that. I don't think he's totally wrong. I don't think it's quite as strong as he might think it is. Sure. But I do think there is, there is some, there's some decent evidence that there is a consistent difference between liberals and conservatives in terms of which of the foundations they prioritize specifically, yeah, the, the Republicans, the, like conservatives prioritize all of them equally, supposedly, and liberals or leftists prioritize care and fairness and deprioritize loyalty, authority, and sanctity. Um, and and quasi-liberty, you know, and quasi like liberty is the third for, for, for liberals, he yeah. says. It's like, it's like down there. Well, he says they'll let it go if they think that care is better. So they, there's very often yeah, they'll let it they're go. They're very like the, the yeah, his view is they're very hierarchically placed yeah. in the liberal mindset. But in the conservative mindset, he's just like, no, they, they, it's all it's the same. All the same. They're all the same. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's why right. I, I'm not crazy about the last part of this book. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think you should be because I think it's wrong on several, several fronts. So like, here's a question for you going back to your disgust thing now that we've, we've laid that out. I think it's a really good question to ask is purity or disgust actually an independent moral foundation in some way that is not sufficiently covered by the other moral foundations? Or is it, is it at best sort of an evolutionary inroad for us to gain some insights about like what is good for us to do or not good for us to do, but actually should be discarded in favor of care or fairness, right? What do y'all think? I, I, I don't know, because like, I think I'm struggling right now with the framing of that question, I guess, because. So, yeah, it, let me, let me frame it as a hypothetical, right? So this, yeah. this comes up, for example, in the issue of gay rights or gay marriage or something or gays, just the gays. Okay. Right? Like <laughs> uh, it's a lot of, gays. a lot of, <laughs> yeah, it's gays, excuse me. A lot of the conservative <laughs> reactions to homosexuality are disgust driven. Like we right. all know sure. this. It's, yeah, yeah, even, yeah. it's even remotely a question, right? Yeah. Right. Um, if you're given a moral choice where you have to decide between, and this, this often is what happens, is people have to decide between foundations, right? All of these foundations might have some value, maybe. I don't think they all do, but like, I'm a moral foundations theorist in the sense that I do think there are a bunch of irreducible, competing moral things that we have to try to balance, like freedom versus safety, all those kinds of basic trade-offs, right? Um, but I don't 
think there's anything actually of value in the idea of purity or disgust such that if we have a situation where some folks are like, hey, I'd like equal rights and other folks are like, yeah, but you're really icky. I think we should tell the icky people they're fucking wrong. Like they're just morally objectively wrong. And I think Height's bad at telling people they're morally objectively wrong. Yeah. And this to me, the reason I, I struggled with the question the first way it was phrased and struggle with it now is that this does sort of, to me, it like it, the, the question that arises from this is how often easily or practically does moral philosophy trump moral psychology? So if if the gut reaction, and we know it's true, if the gut reaction for some people is to be repulsed by something, and we mm. know that that creates for some people a post hoc moral justification for that disgust, I think it's easy to say, yes, and that is wrong. But then that also to me is structurally valueless because it doesn't produce a result where people move from one position to another, unless you can like overcome the repulsion or overcome the disgust. So it's like that right. psychology philosophy, like the philosophy is the easier question. We, we know the psychology, we know the philosophy, but then squaring that yeah. circle toward action is where I get hung up. I, I also want to say too, what, what I would do uh-huh. is, and what I think about is you use these foundational principles, these pillars to try to move the elephant. So you say, yeah, "Yeah, you're disgusted by that, but you have to consider someone's liberty when you think about this. There's two consensual adults, so you have to now lean on this other pillar to take away your, I don't even know what that would be, uh, uh, sanctity, I guess. I don't know what you would put that under. I feel awful just even talking about it, but you know what I mean? Like like whatever these, these awful people think, you know, whatever pillar they're leaning on, you have to try to entice them to another pillar. You have to say, okay, that's fine, but you need to come over here to Liberty because Liberty matters for everyone. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, but I I was seized on something you said, like what these awful people think. And I think hate, and to some degree, I'm, I'm hard pressed to disagree. Like hates whole thing is like, this is not thoughtful. And so when a lot of, when some or a significant amount of our like moral positioning comes from a place that is pre thoughtful, how strong is that positioning, especially for people who are not like us, like yeah, sitting no, and listening. Yeah, no, we're going to try to have like, a conversation right, about it, right? Like sitting in like, for guys like the right. three of us where it's like, yeah, you know what, we're, Cecil and I are actually going to become friends over reading like, you know, Kant moral philosophy. Like that's not most people. Like that's not, most people are not spending their time deeply considering and reconsidering their moral position. Right, right. They're living a moral positioning based on a set of intuitions that are driven in part by things like disgust. And that, that to me, like that's like, it's wrong, but I'm like, I remember like in college, one of my favorite stories, like in college, I wrote this long paper about this book and I'm like, guys, and you could read this as like this, instead of this like feminist way, you could read it, you could read this in this capitalistic way. And I wrote this long paper. And at the end of it, my professor just wrote, so what? Because I forgot to make a fucking point about it. I just said it could be done. And I think about that all the time with respect to this, like moral philosophy is like, so what? If we don't do anything, all we're doing is pointing at it and saying that's wrong and we know it, but 
like how do we move the rider or how do we move the the elephant you know yeah and aaron you well, can yeah, use yeah. that well, so me, what thing on your papers too from now on it was, You're it was the most to use that. devastating yeah. criticism so it's devastating and it'll hurt at people's yeah, feelings i'll vicious. never it's forget it'll, it'll hurt people yeah. so that's i'll good. never forget that <laughs> that is the only comment the only comment on this long thing i'm like oh you can read this fucking book as like a fucking marks and then she just wrote so, so what <laughs> and that was the whole thing I and i was like fuck right there's a story I think about Anscombe would like she would draw a line in the paper where she stopped reading like oh, that was her note shit. Huh. that's a fucking hammer <laughs> drop huh. yeah uh, um, oh, so, hold on hold on I had a professor oh, 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 I had a critical thinking professor the meanest motherfucker in the world he was super fucking mean he would take excerpts from everyone's papers and then he would critique them in one big paper and he would mercilessly critique right. the excerpt and then he would hand that out to everybody <sighs> so he would publicly shame you in his class by you like one time I misspelled principle this is in the days before spell check guys so I misspelled principle in the sense that I used principle with an E instead of with an A or whatever I messed up and he huh. he went through and like was like telling me how it, you need to understand the principle of the principle of the principal, he's trying to be all super clever oh and he makes God. you feel like shit in front of everybody. Anyway, so I just had to say that. <laughs> Fuck That's that so guy. brutal. Fuck you, Ken. Eat a dick. All right, go ahead. Aaron. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's important that you needed to get that out. And, uh, <laughs> Thanks for letting me do it. I appreciate uh, yeah. it. Okay, so this is where I, like, I really do think we have to reiterate, you have to keep different conversations somewhat separate, even though they influence each other. So there's a conversation about what is the moral truth? There's a conversation about how do we persuade people, right? And they both matter. So you're asking like, yeah. why does the, what is the, what is the truth matter, right? Well, I think it, it matters because we want to do the right thing, first of all. Like we actually do care about the moral truth. And it matters for persuasion because I think the right way to understand the elephant metaphor is you have to placate the emotions, but you also have to make an argument to the writer once the emotions are placated, right? And so I think you still want to have a good moral argument for why we should actually mm -hmm. side with pro-gay people instead of the anti-gay people. Because I think otherwise, in this worldview, and this is where I think Haidt goes wrong meta-ethically, he claims to be a pluralist, by which he means... I, I think by which he means cultural relative, actually. I think he thinks that all, to some degree, almost all of the cultures have to be acceptable on his view, even though like he sort of says that there might be ones that are left out. If you like, if you read the book, his conversion experience yeah. is going to a patriarchal culture and being like, well, everyone seems really happy in this incredibly patriarchal culture. Maybe there's something to patriarchal culture. And that's like, that's how he applies this moral foundations theory. He sort of goes in the direction of all of the foundations have core things that we need to, and like here are examples of conservatives and libertarians. And that's why the part three matters is that like, that's where he lays out what he thinks are the examples of where like conservative and libertarian moral palettes are better than uh, They're more broad. Uh, lefty moral palettes. They're more broad. Well, no, he says, he says better, actually. He says, and not just better for persuasion, I think he really thinks that there is a shortcoming to the liberal palette that it doesn't take seriously enough those other foundations. And I think Joshua Green in, in Moral Tribes has the, has the better of him on this, where he basically says, actually, I think the left has a more refined moral palette, which is to say, 
leftists correctly recognize that in a conflict between the moral foundations, care and fairness should win out over authority and sanctity and these, you know, like these other, these other things, right? Liberty, it's more debatable, right? But like the ones that are like the straight up conservative values, I, I think they don't actually have value in themselves. They only at best have instrumental value towards the purposes of care and fairness. And from a persuasion perspective, it's probably not the case that you're going to do better as a lefty trying to persuade a conservative by trying to appeal to purity or something, right? You all appealed to liberty in your example because liberty is a shared value. Right. I, you know, there's, I think, good evidence that like the, you still benefit the most from sincerely appealing to values that everyone does share that are like care or fairness or something. Like you can understand where a person is coming from with the other moral foundations, but you don't have to like try to like rewrite your argument to solely appeal to those foundations. Um, so yeah, I, I think he's not a good pluralist because a good pluralist has to be able to say one side is more right than the other about certain things. Um, if I could just like throw out a few examples from that part three, just like yeah, he sure. claims effectively that conservatives understand the concept of moral capital, um, which a uh, better like especially he, he cites um, Soul, who I think is actually not a, a good reliable source of information. But like this is an example where I think he, you know, is is overly credulous towards conservative and libertarian ideas. Um, I think you know I would put height closer to a libertarian sometimes. Yeah, than an actual sure, would absolutely. Too. Yeah, I would yeah, too. Hundred percent. Yeah. Right, and I think he's ridiculous in claiming that like libertarian is not a cons- not closer to conservative. Oh, that's especially absurd. in America. Yeah, that's right? absurd too. And that's whole, absurd. With, uh, so, so he says things like he 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 critiques people who who claim that like markets aren't good. Essentially, he basically says that working markets are the best way to bring healthcare at the lowest price. Um, he says that like we should be effectively like social Darwins about free markets, which is going to be contradictory to what, what we're going to then talk about his conclusions yeah, in the absolutely. article he wrote. Absolutely. Yeah. In this article. Yeah. yeah. 100%. Yeah. Right. Um, he thinks conservatives are right to retain nationalism and religion as a form of social cohesion, as far as I can tell. And he effectively sort of soft pedals the idea of ethno nationalism because too much diversity erodes solidarity. Like he seems sympathetic to all of those positions. And I think it's because He's not good at actually balancing the moral foundations on the philosophical side. Yeah, I, I, I actually feel like that is the most helpful critique yeah. of how I felt. Re- because I, I, I was absolutely like I'm reading the first two thirds of this book and the first two thirds are primarily moral psychology. And I was, I was down. I was like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. I, you know, there's a lot of evidence cited mm-hmm. in here. There's a lot of studies cited in here. Like, and there's, and then I think he does lose himself completely when he then says, all right, what do we do with all this? Which is the movement then, as I understand it, from moral psychology to moral philosophy. He's good at the descriptive, right. terrible at the The worst part about the whole book, in my opinion, oh, yeah. and then we're going to shift off the book because we got we to gotta move on to this, this other article. piece. But, but the, yep. the, the worst part about the book is that he kind of leads you on throughout the whole thing being like, this is how you can talk to the other side. And then yes. there's none of that. There's literally none of that in the book. There is not a moment that I could glean from that to say, here's how you change yeah. someone's mind. It never happens. He kind of feels like he alludes to it throughout, but he never actually gets there. That's why I only like, like Tom, I only like that first couple pe- like ha- parts of the book because I think it, it introduced me 
because I had never heard these. I, I, you know, I have a degree in philosophy as well. And I did study some ethics, but the, but I went to a school that was a lot more classical philosophy. It was a continental philosophy school. And so we studied like ancient works and, you mm-hmm, know, medieval mm-hmm. works. And so we're, we weren't ever studying right. modern ethics. And so I never, I never really caught any of this stuff. So this was really interesting to me, an interesting way to look at it. And so it, it helped me understand this, this, you know, moral foundations philosophy, which I had never really heard of. So I'm glad you're, uh, you're, you're spending some time uh, explaining this to us, but we want to talk about Jonathan Haidt as a person. You had talked right. about him being part of this intellectual dark web I had never heard of it. Tom had never heard of it. No. In fact, we were we actually reached out to this guy um, and his oh, PR I'm so, people. I'm so repeatedly jealous of y'all's minds. I want to live in a world <laughs> where you never heard of like so jelly. Uh, uh, yes, go on. But uh, we reached out to his his publicist to see if he could come on the show, and he gave us a after my next book sort of thing. Maybe I can come on. It was a like. Like, you know, yeah, whatever kid kind of thing. But we had reached out to him multiple Mm. times to see if he could come on to talk about the Righteous Mind book. And we never really got anywhere with it. And then when we brought this up to you, you're like, oh, no, he's part of like this fucking crazy intellectual dark web. And so I want to hear about the intellectual dark web because he's probably never, Uh ever coming on our show. Yeah. And so we're really interested to hear about this. Yeah, Tell us what that is for for other people Uh, that might have the same virginal minds as Cecil and I. Yeah, and... For for like the extended version of this, I did a really good episode with Chris Kavanaugh on Embrace the Void. He's the guy from um, Decoding the Gurus. Um, he does a lot of like, we're, we're now described as the critical sphere, I guess is the way they're calling us. Uh, the people who are critical of the IDW and the sense makers and all of these things. So IDW stands for Intellectual Dark Web, which is a silly name that was probably made up by Eric Weinstein, who's one of the people in this group. I think was I think he was the one who coined it. And it was popularized by a New York Times piece by Barry Weiss, because, you know, all the people are so canceled that they can't get any, any you know, any oh, publicity no. yeah, except absolutely. for... The New, New York Times, Times. You, know, you know, biggest things possible. Sure. Um, I, I hate that the well, only one that'll ever publish my essays is the goddamn New York Times. It's so fucking frustrating. I can't get anything Ridiculous. written. Ridiculous. Like Breitbart's like, yeah. no. I'd love to get something in the post once no. in a while. Jesus. Ass. Times, times, uh, times. Doesn't really fit our New York. Um, yeah, no. So the IDW is... It's basically the anti-woke sphere, I think, is the way to think about this. It's a, a collection of individuals gurus, one might say, who are are joined in their dislike of liberal leftism gone too far, social justice gone too far, and a sort of common belief that like mainstream media and society is all captured by wokeness. And that's bad for various reasons. This was popularized by Barry Weiss. Um, You know, in the original article, it included Sam Harris. uh, I think Jordan Peterson was in there, Joe Rogan. Um, I think Hyde is in there. The Weinstein. God, I'm yawning like, so much. Do the P the names. I'm just like, oh my God, I'm going to yawn every time you say one of these names. So boring. There's well, nothing. <laughs> oh God. It's a collection well, of fucking dipshits. Stuff, right. Here's the thing. So like all of them like have this anti-woke bias. Many of them have various forms of narcissistic personality disorder, I think. Uh, <laughs> th- you know, like, this, this sphere I would also expands to include folks like James Lindsay before he completely flamed out. Like anyone who's in that like heterodox is another term for this in reference to Jonathan Heights, Heterodox Academy. What about that guy, that, that, that guy um, who wrote that atheist book? 
um, converting people to atheist book. Oh, Bogosian. Bogosian? James Lindsay does acts and sword katas on Twitter. He used to, he's canceled now. He got his white Christian nationalism. He got his Twitter canceled. So he's not on Twitter anymore. Aaron, I know that he's a white Christian nationalist and I know that that's actually the most important thing about him, but the most know, important thing about him for me are his cringy axe katas. No, they're, they're it, it, if, if it's if, so bad. If I was in a tomahawk fight with him, I would be worried for sure. So. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten in an axe fight and I've been like, <laughs> "Where's James Lindsay right now?" <laughs> right. He's just leaning up against his car, smoking you. a cigarette. There, there's a lady getting mugs. Like you don't want to do that, punk. As someone with with cringy uh, martial arts videos on the internet myself, I wouldn't necessarily throw stones at that house. I hundred percent am a cringy martial artist myself, but I don't yeah. post them as a, as a celebration of a hundred thousand subscribers. Anyway, continue on with your conversation. Go no, no, you're totally. Totally fine. So, so yeah, this loose collection who all as a result of being anti-woke, I would argue, even though many of them see themselves as liberal or classical liberal or, yeah. you know, the left, left behind, blah, 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 post, yeah. post-tribal. They're all, yeah, Dave Rubin is part of this group too. The like, fuck is post-tribal? <laughs> what the, like, you're just, I love you, Aaron, but you're saying a fucking shit ton of like, like uh, what I, these what I, garbage honest. words. These, these are, are garbage. These are, thank you. These are a bunch of silo descriptors. That's what they are. It's like, there's yeah. these like yeah. weird yeah. fucking yeah. silo descriptors. And it is for sure insane at so, some point. So, so think of the IDW as the silo of people who believe falsely that they are not in a silo. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh. So it's wool. It's just, uh, it's, okay. All right. I, okay. So, yeah. so we, we had no so, idea who this yeah. was. Yeah. And right. we recognize that, you know, it's problematic, this idea. And, and actually to be honest, well, even in this, even yeah. in this, even in this article that we're going to be talking about this after Babel article, he does in a lot of pejorative ways, talk about wokeness, right? Yeah, so right. he's not, he yeah. doesn't, he doesn't feel like that's a thing. That's, that's, uh, yeah. that's a boon or a Way benefit to anyone. About- what Maganus or, yeah, or, or, or I, conservative I, anything? I feel like I feel like this article. I want to I want to lay the ground rule, the ground sort of set set the ground rules for this article. Before I do, is yeah. there anything you want to add about the intellectual dark web before I move on? I don't want to I don't want to take away from you if you had a, a special point or anything you want to. Well, I think what's what's valuable to know about the intellectual dark web is that the vast majority of them have either laundered or spiraled directly into conspiracism of various sorts because. There, one of the things that held them together was this like rejection of orthodoxy or something. But they were like, they go way too far in the other direction and and like continue like yes and everything. Um, and Height has a bit of that to to his credit, I will say, him and like Steven Pinker have slid the least far in that direction. I do think that like Height has lots of terrible views, like the ones I just talked about, but he hasn't promoted or laundered like white replacement conspiracism the way that like he's actually Michael Schirmer or the people have. But he's actually right. in this article, like he, he literally is yeah. saying that's a, that's a huge negative. Those are, those people are pretty terrible people. Like I feel like, yeah, I want to give credit. Like I want to yeah. give like credit where it's due is that he is not. And we'll read that. Like we'll talk about the after Babel article is that he is not, he is deeply critical of the right as, as well as the left. And he does go through pains. He spends, it's interesting. Cause I, I agree. He spends more time like in terms of column space, talking about 
some of the darts that the left shoots into their own head. But he also says none of that is as bad as the darts that the right is shooting. So there is more column space dedicated to the left, but there is an explicit Mm -hmm. statement that it is worse on the right than on the left. Let me, let me, I just want to put that out. Let me lay the ground rules about the article. Let me, let me talk about the article itself and then we'll go into the article and talk about it. I'm just going to lay out exactly what he talks about in the article. So he says he, he uses Babel as a metaphor for red and blue America, unable to communicate he, bla- he basically blames most of this miscommunication on social media, uh, on the emergence of social media. He points to a time, the inflection point he thinks is sometimes around the, the 2010, 2011 t- uh, era when there was the Arab Spring and there was also the, the global Occupy movement. Those things were the start of this of this happening. Uh, he says there's uh, two forces that bind successful democracies, social capital and strong institutions. Oh, pardon me. I guess three shared stories as well. And social media, he claims has weakened all three social capital, strong institutions and shared stories. He thinks that share sharing and like buttons and virality and public shaming are the main problems with social media. And that those are the things that are causing the most discord in those spheres he also says that confirmation bias is something that we that tends to get promoted way more on the internet and it is something that uh, people will fall into way more commonly. He says that the, that social media essentially gave a dart gun to millions of people and those darts do damage to uh, the intellectuals on their side most of the time. And it's the extremes that are shooting the darts to sort of pull these intellectuals and the people who are, have voices to those extremes. And then he says that we're, we're in for something even worse as we move forward because AI and the flooding of the information ecosystem, it can be much easier to do in the future. And then he finally, at the end of the article, has some steps in the right direction. He says, harden democratic institutions, reform social media, and prepare the next generation by letting them go outside and play. Now, I want to say this is this article is f- like 45 to 50 minutes long if you want to listen to it on autumn. I'm going to link it in the description in the show notes. It's an Atlantic article. It'll take you less than an hour to read. Tom and I, I've read this article three times. Same, yeah. And I think that there's a lot of good stuff in here, especially if you you are a little bit leery of social media. And I think there is some good things in here that he points to. But I want it. We wanted to talk to yeah, you about it. Yeah, you're here for it, a reason right now, Aaron. Because because both Tom and I were mm-hmm. very, we were very much into this article. Thought it was very good. I do agree that the both sidesism is a problem. Um, because, you know, there's no way on one hand to say one side sometimes does some questionable things at universities by disinviting professors and another side tried to siege the Capitol. You know what I mean? So I feel like there's definitely right. a huge discrepancy between those two things. And he seems to be bringing them up in opposition to each other. And one side always seems worse. Like one side is vaccine misinformation. The other one's like, be a little cautious around COVID. And I'm like, okay, but I get it. But at the same time, man, these are not so I, but, but Tom is right. He explicitly very often in the article says the right is worse at this and the right is doing more damage. So yeah, here's what I'll say about the, like, I, I, I guess, my experience of it isn't exactly just a bullsiderism problem. I think it's more 
his narrative starts too late for, for me, for starters. Like, I think he locates the problem in 2010 and makes it largely about media or largely about the internet. But like, if, his, if, if the metaphor is supposed to be about the balkanizing of our understanding of reality, right? The like splitting up of we're in two realities, two societies or whatever now or something like that or a million different societies, whatever, it goes back way farther. And I think it's important that it, we, we talk about that it goes back to, you know, the social justice, 60s, like civil rights era, where you start to have a pulling apart over, you know, that. Or like anti-scientism in, in Christian conservatism leading to a pulling apart of basic facts about reality. And then you have like the 80s, you have the 90s, you have, you know, like specifically a move in the conservative movement to like not give a shit about facts essentially right yeah. fox news fox news was doing this long before the internet had gotten into anyone's minds in any significant degree so what i would argue is it's true that social media is an accelerant right it takes what is there and makes it happen faster right the virality stuff makes it faster makes makes it easier to find the people who agree with you and find community and get reinforced all those sorts of things but the balkanizing of reality was there to begin with it wasn't caused by the internet and we i think i think there's a good piece of evidence for this which is the internet hasn't face fucked the entire world equally right like some cultures are doing a little better than others on the like misinformation side of things not not like perfect everyone's struggling but like america has a unique problem of balkanization because we are a deeply morally and and like socially fractured society that hasn't dealt with our history well and like all of that was being actively weaponized by the Republican Party for decades before the internet. And the internet just like threw a bunch of gasoline on that fire. So I don't think he includes not enough of any of that in, in the article, personally. So, all right. Do you then... So the, the, the title of the article is... What was the title there? After Babel, Why the Last 10 Years Have Been Uniquely Stupid. I think I'm, I'm, I'm close, yeah. if I'm not perfect. It, do you take issue mm-hmm. then with the premise that the last 10 years have not been uniquely stupid? Is that... So you're... To me, to me as I just yeah. read your, your part... Yeah, so... I think we would say... I mean, like, uniquely, do we mean, like, categorically or degrees, right? Like, it's been I, extremely stupid I think his argument is degrees. I, I think to be fair to his argument, his argument, because he, he, he cites all the way back to Newt Gingrich, which to your point isn't far enough, but he doesn't actually... I think his point is a matter of degrees. Like, it, like the accelerant, I think part of his point is the accelerant matters. Like, if my house is on fire, but I can confine it to one room, that's bad. And there's a fire and someone started it and it could get out of control at any minute. But like if somebody is spritzing the air with gasoline, that, that mm-hmm. is a uniquely problematic behavior, which, which I think is what he's pointing at. But so I think it is a matter of degrees, which is where his argument really starts at. Not a categorical distinction. I'm fine to, do you not read it that I, I way organically though? No, I think, I think the word uniquely conveys something different. And I think the fact that he says that it, started 10 years ago and that I don't think he talks enough about the history of post-truth or of like these deep moral and epistemic disagreements that I, you know, so that's, that was just like, I, yeah, I don't think that it reads that way to me. I'm willing to like entertain that argument though, because I do think that is closer to something plausible at least that like you do have just like television 
you know, likely accelerated things from the pr- previous model of muckraking, right? Like in the modern age of, right. you know, screwing people over is much faster, right? It's much more effective. You know, cancel culture is like, like the culture part is debatable, but the cancel part is quite real. Like you can do huge damage to a person online very quickly, very easily over almost nothing a lot of the time. Like that isn't always the case for what happens, but it does absolutely happen. And that like also... You know, you have all of the like filter bubble problems that are true about social media. You have, you know, um, all of the algorithm problems that like accelerate certain kinds of content because they get more clicks and they're more popular. Like, I think we talked about this stuff on, on, on in our previous chats. You know, I'm sympathetic to those parts of the critique, I think. But then it becomes like his solutions are are like, a little bit wacky, you know, like they get, they get very silly. And it's like, I, I think it's, I think it's pretty low hanging fruit at this point to say that social media is an accelerant. And if that's all the article is bringing to the table, then like, it doesn't seem particularly insightful because that's, that's something that we've, we've already talked about previously. I do think it's worth talking about where he goes with that theory, because like, I think it again, reinforces that like, he's not a very consistent internal moral reasoner to some extent. Um, yeah. So like, what do y'all think before I, 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 think, I think that's interesting perspective. What I think is, you know, where he goes with it is what, what, what drew me to the article, because I, I recognize, I think a lot of people recognize, I don't think it's a controversial statement to say that social media fucks a lot of things up. I don't think that's a, that's a controversial right. statement to be like, you know, social media has done some really bad things and it has made us certainly, it certainly feels like it's made us more polarized. It's made us uh, where, where, where there's, where there's very little a chance to, uh, to meet in the middle often. And one of the things that he talks about and, and, and I, he spends a lot of time on is talking about how small the far right and left groups are, yet they seem to have the loudest messages when it comes to online spaces. And they seem to be the ones that are pulling people in directions when a lot of people might not have as radical ideas they just, but, but the, the social media sort of shames them into thinking they need to have these radical ideas. And I, I, I feel like I'm a little sympathetic to that idea. I think that there are that, that yeah. there are, like I get called, I get called a centrist all the time on this show. People will send messages to me and be like, you're a centrist. I'm like, uh-huh. I am, I don't feel like I'm a centrist. I don't feel like I, I, all of my voting I get called in a the past enabler. Yeah, debating so, people. Well, there sure. you go. So, you know, like that's the thing is like there is a loud group of people on the internet who will go out of their way to tell you things that 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 are yeah. farther away from where I am, but to them, to them, anybody to the right of them is a is a far right fascist. You know what I mean? And so like I feel like there's something to that. Yeah. I actually, I think I, I wrote about this recently in that in the piece I did about Shermer and the mainstreaming of conspiracism by folks in the IDW kind of sphere, which is that I, I think it's really particularly bad because it causes what I think is the following series of events for a lot of people. Some not radical person sees what they think is a not radical person making what they think is a not radical argument. They then think that argument is plausible. They then go to other people and they say, what do you think of this argument? And they get a really powerful response, right? Like a really overwhelming response. And instead of that, like actually, you know, 
helping them understand why the argument wasn't particularly good or why it's actually like anti-Semitic conspiracism with like a thin veneer of normalcy on top of it, right? Like they think, oh, this actually is forbidden truth. People actually yeah. are resisting this. Oh, and wow. they, they, they get pulled in that direction, right? So like it does create the beginning of what I think becomes a feedback loop of combative behavior leading towards increased entrenchment. Like if, if, you're, if your thesis is wokeness is extreme and then you go to talk to some people and they act really strongly then you feel confirmed in your thesis especially yeah, if you fair. don't yeah. know that like and, and like the thing is their strong reaction might also be justified let's use our moral foundations here right like if you're a person like me who spends a lot of time on the internet like dealing with this stuff right it, it can get sort of frustrating or tiring to have another person come along and be like but why? Why isn't it true that we're just slowly trying to replace all the white people? Like, what? Are, you know, let's tell you the facts of that a little bit or something. You know, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm drawn back to to something we talked about briefly just a few moments ago because I think it, it's it, it just made me stop and think. Is you know, I, I sort of mm -hmm. like made a joke like these are all silo descriptors, and I was just thinking as we were talking here that you know one of the things that that is happening I think is that we are describing, we are constantly like creating this kind of like semantic cartography of the information ecosystem. And that, yep. that labeling that is taking place like encourages bad faith arguments and encourages us to make more connections and hear each other a lot less. And I think that that mm -hmm. is something which is like to your point, like let's say I were to go online and I hear an argument and it is a bad faith argument, but I don't know that because I'm just some guy first hearing about Jonathan hate and I don't have any idea who he is. And you know what? Tom is actually bad at ever looking at seeing who wrote something. I just read stuff and I never look at who wrote it. I literally never do that ever. And actually it's a rule that I follow myself. So <laughs> Like in the IDW, they call that high decoupling. You're a, you're a brilliant high decoupler because uh, you don't attach the uh, ideas to the I. people. I, I and I, I, it's a rule that I've followed now for 25, 22 years. I won't re, I won't look at who wrote something. So, but that also means that I could very easily, if I was online, I could very easily say, Hey, I just read this yeah. and it was really interesting. And then I could become That's labeled. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, is that bad? <laughs> I'm, I'd say, okay. <laughs> It's about a struggle. It's my struggle. Has anyone heard of this guy? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. But I, I think that there's something I, to I too that. feel like I'm struggling frequently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I do like, I feel like there's something to that. I feel like that, that, that labeling that, that like reactionary labeling, that bad faith siloing mm. that it's, it's a, it's a problem. It is not a good it is not making us smarter. And I really reacted strongly to hate's article in that respect, because that is making us worse thinkers. Mm -hmm. I just, I just can't yep. see that it doesn't. I also, I, I think it might be the case in a more sort of subtle kind of way, merely being in a situation where we all feel more compelled to justify our beliefs to other random people online. Like, Think about it before this, you know, before the internet, right? You didn't have to spend much of any of your time justifying your beliefs to like random strangers or things like that. But now that you do, everybody kind of feels like they have to become amateur philosophers or experts or whatever right. in, in like the things they believe and they have to defend them. And like, they don't make like just bad faith arguments. They just make bad arguments. Like, 
like we all make bad arguments. And if you haven't done a lot of it, like you go out there and you make some bad arguments and some people freak out at you and you freak out back at them. And like, if you're famous, if you're Jordan Peterson, you make those bad arguments and then 10 million people agree with them for some reason. Like, <laughs> or yeah, if you're just a young person. Problems. Like, there, like, like one thing that I was very sympathetic to in this article is like, I think mm-hmm. about my intellectual, like kind of growing up and Cecil and I did a lot of it together and we would get together. We'd drive somewhere. We did this in the cars a lot. We did this like a party, like we'd get together and we'd have these, like what we felt like were really deep and meaningful conversations, but acknowledging that we were bad at having those conversations at first and that you only get better by having them over and over again with a variety of different people and different inputs and then learning how to have conversations that have rigor and not just curiosity. But I I do Mm -hmm. feel like one of the things that hate points out in this article is that our inability to hear across these sort of ideological lines, our inability to literally the babble metaphor, literally understand the language that is used across these ideological lines makes it less possible for us to grow in the ways that I remember having the opportunity to grow intellectually. And I was so sympathetic to that argument because the space that we use to have those conversations, when Cecil and I had them, we had the luxury of having them in person. Sure. And so I could fuck up and say something terrible and not know it was terrible. And the only one who heard it was Cecil. But now everything is public. It's not in perpetuity too, right? Right. You can go back and look at my bad arguments on a message board from 20 years ago, you know? So I think there's something there. There's also a flip side to this, though, right? If we are social, moral epistemologists, right? We need to be talking to people in order to get better at ethics. I actually think some of that needs to be within a community that has positive, healthy morals already. And the internet provides that for a lot of people who are trapped in places that That's don't a great have point. that. That's so a great like, point, yeah. You know, so like there are a lot of people being pulled out of bad epistemic environments by the internet as, as as well as people being pulled into them, you know, in these various, it's like, it's a lot of epistemic luck about where you end up on the internet in that kind of way. I do think that there are structural features of the internet, some of which he highlights, you know, the viral, virality stuff, the like button, the public shaming that are bad. Um, but this gets us to our like, you know, his conclusions about what to do about it don't really make a lot of sense. Really, right? I only like more actionable. So like, I do, I do like, I do like his his uh, his conclusion on how to change politics, which is to turn it into ranked choice voting. And then we have seen that pop up in a couple of places in the United States, and I think it's a worthwhile endeavor. I mean, Sarah Palin just lost because of ranked choice voting, and there was more votes for the Republican initially. There was right. more structural votes for the Republican yeah. initially. I mean, this is the thing. It's sort of like there's a there's a uh, safe version, a mild version, a weak version of his of his like conclusions. That's like his a weak version of his argument. Where you're like, yeah, yeah, the internet has some problems, right? And like, yes, it would be better to have better voting, but as a solution to the babble problem, it doesn't seem like it even touches it. Like it like it it staves oh, no, off some I, of the symptoms a little bit, but it doesn't like 
It doesn't address the issue of the fact that one of the political parties no longer like believes in like fair elections where they lose. You're right. right? It won't change that, but it will take their voice away. So if you start with a ranked choice system and you start slowly pulling out the, the rug underneath the Matt Gates and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and they can't get traction where they're at and they can't win where they're at, then suddenly their voice is gone or at least a large portion of their voice and the authority of the US government stamp that they wear. So those things, when you start pulling those things away, that suddenly takes credibility away from their voice. And I think that yeah. that's a, that's I don't a positive fixes, thing. I don't, think, I, don't think it fixes, I don't think it fixes the babble problem though, because those are just the most, most, most comically extreme version of the problem. And like, maybe they get pulled out, right? But like, there is no one left in the Republican Party who doesn't believe in the big lie. They kicked out Liz Cheney. Like, <laughs> they kicked her out specifically for not believing in a conspiracy theory. So like, it's not like Gates is being replaced by a reasonable individual who suddenly is going to come to the table. They're just replaced by the, you know, the Ron DeSantis's of the world, right? The slightly better, you know, Taylor Greens, the one who can, you know, say the Jew laser part a little quieter, <laughs> right? So like, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not convinced like this. Is, I, I, what, what I'm saying is I don't think he's acknowledging the problem is as big as he actually has correctly identified it as being. When he gets to the policy stuff, it's like, what you what you really need is you need to get rid of the filibuster. You need to like overhaul the Senate. You need to like pack the Supreme Court. Like those are the things that would actually harden our democratic institutions because I don't think they're getting hardened at all by, you know, like, like, and also how are you getting this magic redistricting in nonpartisan ways when our system is already controlled by the minority white Christian nationalist party? Like um, similar with, you know, the social media reforms, right? Making it harder to go viral. Great in theory. What does that look like actually in practice? And how does a libertarian who thinks that the free market, as we said earlier, is the, you know, the way to get the good things in the world, you know, like you're gonna have to be paternalistic on this one. You're gonna have to shut down some choice. Yeah, but I, I think I think he very explicitly does lay out some 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 measures that in my mind make a lot of sense as far as what revising social media. So he, to reduce virality, he says anything that you try to share that's been shared more than a handful of times, you can't just click the share button. You have to actually like stop, copy, paste, like perform a slightly more cumbersome action. Isn't that just internet safetyism? Like this is the other par problem is that like one of his solutions is anti-safetyism towards children. But like what you're describing is like an annoying neoliberal solution where it's like, oh, I have to click two buttons to tell this person to go fuck it's, themselves. Yeah, but it's means reduction. This internet. Yeah, but yeah, but that's important, right? Because like we've seen in so many other cases where means reduction has a very demonstrable and immediate sure, impact on sure. reducing unwanted behaviors because fundamentally people don't, they're lazy. People are fucking lazy. They're fucking lazy. And they like, they'll, if something is easy, they do it more often. If something is a little more difficult, we do it less. Like most people are sitting on the shitter hitting share. If I have to sit on the shitter and I can't just comfortably hit share, you know, it's, I, I'm not going to spend the 25 seconds to do it. I think it, I think, uh, in my mind, I'm not, that, saying, I'm not that, saying it can't have any effect. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I'm I not think saying you, it can have any you, benefit. Yeah, so you you combine that with his everybody who gets online like has to go through a mechanism to make sure you're not a bot. I think that that would certainly yeah. Which like what magical you know like technology is is caught like is that doable? I don't think that's remotely even like anything. You don't think that's technologically can... feasible to like reduce? I mean, my, under my understanding not of eliminate, the social media, but reduce. Like, 
my understanding is that social media orgs already do not want a bunch of bots on their sites because it's, you know, it's not good for ad revenue, for example, or whatever. Like, there's various reasons why, like, I do think that, like, Twitter is already trying to, to some extent, combat the kind of bot problem. I'm, I'm for combating it more, but I don't think, like, I don't think it actually fixes the problem because you can just have, you know, farmer accounts where they have, you know, people who actually are real human beings who sign up for real accounts and then spread misinformation. Yeah. So like, but I, I guess to me, like, you and know, I, I, I'll stop you there because like, I, mm-hmm. I do, I hear what you're saying, but I, I think that that runs into the all or nothing issue. I think that the solution set for most problems is not this 100% fixes it or it's not worth it. It's a matter of narrowing the funnel, knowing that some amount of yeah, shit's going to get I through. Agree with that fully. But if you can if you can cut it by 60%, you've cut the problem 60%. That's a big deal. Look at how look at the 12 people online that are 12 people online that were responsible for something like 75 or 80% of the vaccine misinformation. You don't have to so, solve a problem that's, you know, this big. You can solve a problem like, and it, will it fix the whole thing? No, but like when Trump got kicked off Twitter, the amount of dis one guy got kicked off Twitter, the 100%. amount of disinformation plummets. I'm for so the funnel is important. I'm, for sure, it is important. And I would be in favor of most of the things that I think he argues for. Like, get rid of the like button if you want to be, you know, like yeah. do these sorts of things for sure. I just also think that A, there's a reason that those things are being resisted and a large part of it is free market capitalism. So like his yeah, beloved sure. yeah, free right. market yeah. is the reason he's not getting what he wants. No, I, and B, I just, I, I want a little bit more honesty from people like Height who have made a career of, you know, accusing people of coddling other people's minds to acknowledge that what we are now saying is, you know, we need to coddle people's minds a little bit. <laughs> sure, yeah. We're, we're going to do it. We're going to do it really passively. Yeah. We're not going to like actively suppress any particular information. But y'all are just a little bit too fucking dumb to be getting this much misinformation in your diets, right? Like that's that's pretty paternalistic, pretty safetyist, in my opinion. Um, and is that bad? I also think he's like. Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's uh, not, not bad. Necessarily. It's just okay. It's, it's just, just frustrating. It's it's frustrating a hypocritical stance. Up on forever. But it's a hypocritical <laughs> yeah. stance for him, though, right? Because he's sort right. of come a gra- yeah. out against this for a lot. I want to ask both of you what you think of the final internet piece, and that's uh, uh, tied to saying who you are and tied to being who you are. Do you think that cuts down on rape threats, death threats? If even if it's just a third party, they don't, nobody knows who you are technically, but your name is tied to an account. Do either of you think that would slow down the massive vitriol, death threats, horrible things that people do? Yes, at a cost is my answer. What does that mean? Like, what I mean is, Absolutely, right? So if you look at the way that anti Antifa, for example, will dox Nazis and get them fired and shit, like there is evidence that it works, that like outing people gets, you know, for their terrible views will impact how they, how the, the degree to which they want to promote those terrible views. The cost of making it so that no one can be anonymous online. I Anonymity, can, I, he definitely, didn't really say that though. Yeah. I, I think he says that you are tied to an uh, uh, an arbiter, somebody out there that knows for sure you're a real person and your name is tied to it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's that that, that information would be public, that that information so would be available. Yeah. But, but uh, it, I know 
that it's me. And I know I'm typing these things out and someone out there in the world, I know that someone out there in the world knows it's me, even if not the public knows. So, so my concern there would be that keeping that information would be difficult and that like, there are a lot of good reasons for people to want to be anonymous online for, you know, safety not reasons getting and, out into yeah, sure. yeah, safety reasons, safety. not getting out into mm-hmm. their families, sure. all those kinds of reasons. So like, I, I think it would probably be difficult. You certainly need a lot more bureaucracy to adjudicate legitimate and illegitimate claims of need for anonymity, for example, online, if you were going to try to implement a requirement like that. I do think you know, it, you know, if we take all of these things and make them like, here's proactive things that social media orgs could do if they wanted, some of these things are helpful. Like, I do think, you know, changing the way likes and retweets work could be helpful. Um, but I, I, I do get worried about the requirement of not anonymity. It would absolutely clean up a lot of trollish behavior. It would also put a lot of people back in closets. No, and it's, like it, that's a good, that's press, a good, press, yeah. press a lot that's a good point. Yeah. Time. Do you have any other thing else with that? Yeah, I, I guess I, I see both. I, and I, I don't want to do the both sides orism piece because I do have a view mm-hmm. on this, but a hundred percent, we lose no matter what. I think that that's, that's the truth. Like we are losing now the, we have a problem now where there is an, a, a, a very, imperfect anonymity, right? Otherwise doxing wouldn't be a thing. We already have imperfect anonymity online. I think increasing the imperfection of online anonymity might, because again, it's not an all or nothing. It's not perfect anonymity or, or, or no anonymity. I think that mm-hmm. perfect anonymity is a fucking cancer. I think we, I think that is a, a generally cancerous thing. And I mean that word intentionally. I think it it behaves like a cancer in our system. It erodes and, and diseases us socially. So I have a strong view on that. Sure. Um, I see the need for some amount of anonymity, absolutely, for people that are in abusive relationships, yeah, yeah, sure, et cetera, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. They need to have some ability to get online. But I am okay with a less perfect and lesser amount of online anonymity in order to sort of reduce the spread of the cancer. To rein it in a little. Yeah, Yeah. it's too much. It's too strong. Uh, So the other thing he talks about on online is not allowing companies, this is interesting because it goes against his his libertarian, very libertarian stance, not allowing companies to cash in on kids. So allowing kids, and this is also leading towards the next generation. I know that you have some serious problems, Aaron, about the, the next generation talk that he gives. He thinks the kids need to get out and play. That's one of his big things. I think he's trying to sell a book when he does that, to be perfectly frank. But mm. but he's mm-hmm. saying kids need to get out and play and they need to have unstructured play that allows them to go out and, and, and interact with each other in ways that is unsupervised by adults um, because that teaches kids how to be kids and how to be part of society. But then he also says that these social media companies shouldn't be making money off 13 year olds. We should at least wait till 16. I personally think maybe 18, whatever, but they're selling data on little kids at this point. And that's a way to, sure. to, to slow that down because he's saying that, that kids, the, the you know, kids these days, he's saying the kids these days are, uh, are, are actually being becoming more and more depressed 
Um, they, they didn't cite any real data on this, but he did say that it seems yes. like the data is leaning towards children being more depressed because of social media. There is some data, at least I think I read that Facebook has its own data that shows that, that, uh, that, that Instagram is causing some yeah. body issues with, with young people. So there is, there Especially is data out there. There yeah. is data out there, but I, 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 that's a lot. That's a big question, but I wanted to throw it out to you because I know you have problems with this section. Yeah, I think that it's sort of, it is this weird mix of his like old timey get off my lawn <laughs> kind of atheism stuff, but also this like very paternalistic, like we have to be extremely protective of children in the extremely harmful digital information world and much less protective of them in the, I would still argue fairly harmful real world. Like I'm, I'm for, you know, more free range a little bit. Um, but I also think that like, part of what he what we call safetyism or helicopter parenting, like, I don't think he really does a good job analyzing the causes. He tends to associate it, I think, with too much with wokeness and not enough with, A, oops, sorry, just the increased understanding of human developmental psychology from the past several, you know, like decades where we've learned that like they're not tiny adults and like they do need structured development in various kinds of ways or they can be horribly damaged by various things. Um, but also when it comes to unstructured play, I think the really the root cause is toxic meritocracy. I think that the reason children don't get to go outside and play unstructured enough is because they're too busy going from soccer practice to martial arts to band because they have to do all of this stuff in order to like go to college to do the next thing to do the next thing. I mean, you, you know, there's only one uh, as far as I know. There's, there's there is a proper dadologist in the room here who can say maybe a little bit more about that from direct experience, but from talking to my students, they all feel like they constantly have to portray overworked meritocratic burnout, essentially. And they learn that from a young age. And I think, you know, like that that's why the unstructured play has gone away. But I don't think Haidt is willing to be critical about meritocracy because I think he views it as a liberal value. And that like, I don't think he sees how much of the current situation is being driven by that meritocracy trap stuff. I think also the safetyism stuff, like if you're having fewer children and it's vastly more expensive to raise a child and there are all of these like challenges that they're going to face just to get a decent job, even with an undergraduate education, of course, parents are being extremely like focused on raising them and trying to give them every opportunity and stuff like that. So yeah, I think it would be helpful here if we could like be a little bit more honest about what psychological factors are driving parents and, you know, like address those problems rather than like saying it's just the woke. Like he does this weird thing where he jumps from like the woke trying to protect you from ideas to the woke literally trying to protect children from like going outside and running around with each other. I don't know any woke people who give a shit about unstructured play. Like and I think that's a false jump. Like, I just think that, you know, the woke are more concerned than he w used to be about, like, being harmed by bad ideas. Though now that he's arguing in favor of, like, making social media worse or less profitable, let's argue, but, like, less effective at what it was designed to do, I think it's because he has to acknowledge that, like, the woke were right, that ideas <laughs> can oftentimes be more harmful than physical things. Yeah, I, I, I got a different feeling from that end part. I didn't feel like mm -hmm. he was laying that at the feet of the woke. I, I really did not get that feeling from the article that he, and I, and I, 
I also maybe feel I'm like bringing the larger safetyism stuff that he's done, and maybe yeah, that's, that's and just I my may fault not be familiar with it. I, mm-hmm. because I I didn't I didn't get that that feeling, and I did get the sense that, and I agree with you that. I, and I, I got a sense actually, and maybe I could be mistaken that that height might agree with you that the the specific and purposeful differentiation between soccer practice and unstructured free play is specifically speaking to there's too much of this soccer practice meritocracy shit, you know, and I think that's mm-hmm. why he specifically is saying, let's pull kids out of the, cause he's not recommending more soccer practice, right? Even though those, that soccer mm-hmm. practice might accomplish many of the goals that he lays out otherwise in the article and in the righteous mind, he's, he's specifically calling out unstructured free play as a benefit. So I, I don't mm-hmm. know that I necessarily read his comments in the same way in the article as being, um, I, I read them as being consistent with a critique on that sort of um, tyranny of meritocracy that I agree with you about in general, like as like being socially problematic. I would love to hear if he was. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, my, my, my sense is just broadly because the IDW and like to go back to our, our larger sort of context thing, right? Like he's coming from a group of people who have been incredibly defensive of meritocracy because it's been critiqued by the social justice folks for being not real. Yeah. For, and I, I didn't have that context. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's 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 part of where I was coming from on those sorts of things. And I just um I think that like it would be good to to be more honest about why, you know, how meritocracy is playing a role in all of this. And maybe he could, maybe he is more open to those ideas. Maybe his ideas have changed some. It just you know, it would be nice to have an acknowledgement of like I, I beat a lot of people over the head for a long time for coddling people's minds. <laughs> and now I do wish that we would coddle people's minds just a little bit more. Just a little bit of mind coddling online, I think, would be a good thing. <laughs> what do you think? Let's 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 finish this out here real quick. What do you think about us coming into this blind, us not knowing him? Do you think that's what do you think about the the person versus their ideas? I know this is a deep, mm-hmm. deep question, and I don't want to like like make you answer it quickly. But but what do you think about not having the context of the person when you read something like this? Do you think that that's that 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 we approach this in a way that might be, in some ways, a little lazy and a little lackluster? Uh, no, I wouldn't use those terms. I think there's a genuine debate to be had about what's the right way to approach information. You know, context versus not context, right? I think. And like the problem is you can't do both, right? Ideally, what I would, what I would love for you to do is right read it totally contextless, and then get a bunch of context, and then read it again, but in be no way influenced by your first read through, which is like psychologically <laughs> impossible. Right? So the jury will that. disregard what um, they've just yeah, heard. Exactly. Right. Yeah. right. Do it. Do, split, use a te- uh, use a te- transporter. Copy yourself. <laughs> do a double blind. Uh, no. Um, it, it is a fair debate, right? Because there can be ways in which knowing that information can color your reading and that can be bad. And there can be ways in which not knowing that information can color your reading and be bad. I don't I don't have a good answer to like what is... There's, there's no one right way, I think, right? I think you do the best you can to do it both ways, essentially, right? You want to try to read the arguments in isolation, but you also want to understand 
you know, how a particular individual's this one argument is part of their larger project about white genocide or something, you know, like <laughs> that, that is an important context to have. Like, you want to know, right, like right. you shouldn't go blind into reading, you know, Douglas Murray's, you know, death of the West or something like that. Right. Like, I don't think that's a, a great approach to like, what are polemics, right? If you're reading an actual polemic, you should know what the ideology that it's coming from is obviously Height's going to claim that like, Righteous Mind is not a polemic. And I think it's fine to just read Righteous Mind as is, though I think you should listen to this episode first to understand where he goes astray in the, you know, in the, um, uh, the prescriptive side of things. Yeah, yeah. yeah right, in the conclusions and things. Um, I had a, you know, what I always think about when I, when I, when I, when we talk about this issue, when I was studying theater, because I'm a theater major as well as a philosophy major, wow. I had a teacher... You're doubly unemployable. <laughs> deeply, deeply unemployable. Uh, I mean, on the let, menu, I will have everything that does not equal job after it. What do you have? Oh. In? <laughs> English I think, I think lit, all so. like, The top of my employment list is cult, and I have at, at least achieved on that front. So, <laughs> Amazing. Credit where credit's due, I did get the skills I needed. Um... Yeah. So I had this teacher who, whenever we would read plays, he was like, you need to know the name, like who wrote it, when they were born, what the culture was like that they were in, what were they writing in response to? Because like, you don't understand the entire piece of work until you have all of that context. So at some point you desperately need that context, whether you should have it on the first reading or not, that's an interesting question. But you know, you absolutely need to get that context and you need to be as open-minded as you can to like reassessing your view of something once you have that context, because lots of things can, you know, this is, this is the problem of laundering conspiracism and laundered ideas. The laundered version of it can seem really plausible and, and like fine, but like you have to understand that it's coming from this other place in many cases. Um, yeah, that's that's my take on that. It's funny because I think there's a sort of um, well understood or well established uh, agreement that when you read something that is uh, older, that that historical context is necessary. Um, and I don't mm. know that we all necessarily agree that when you read modern yeah, work, that a modern context yeah, yeah. may also yeah. be, but, but, uh, but even as I say that, I think to myself, I don't know that I understand what a modern contextualization really means the same way that I understand a historical contextualization. Cause you don't have distance. There's really no yeah, way to have any yeah. kind of intellectual or historical distance from the modern in the same way that we pretend we have, at least for the yeah, historical. Yeah, I think there's a lot of pretending going on with the historical. Well, right. but I, yeah. So, so I think the textbook example that I would point to, if I, you know, people to understand why context matters, is the episode with Ezra Klein and Sam Harris talking about Charles Murray. So, for folks who are not familiar, Ezra Klein, a progressive podcaster, Sam Harris, a intellectual dark web guy, yeah. Intellectual dark webby, but like, again, one of the ones who hasn't spiraled as far as Lindsay and stuff like that. Um, and they were arguing about an episode that Harris had done with Charles Murray, where he had him on to talk about the bell curve, which is his book where he argues that like differences in outcomes are partially, to some extent, the result of 
IQ differences between races, essentially. That's one of the one of the arguments that became very controversial from that book. Subtitle, um, yikes! And, yeah. <laughs> right. And, and, and Harris, Harris had him on and called the episode Forbidden Knowledge and like prefaced it as like, this is uncontroversial truth, but it's treated as controversial by the woke. And then basically like softballed Charles Murray through an interview about this stuff. Um, and Ezra Klein criticized him. And so Harris went on Ezra's show, I think is where it ended up. And basically Klein was like, Charles Murray has a lifetime project of libertarian deconstruction of the social safety net via the argument that racial IQ differences are the large reason for differences in pop, you know, outcomes. And therefore it's not worth it to try to like close the racial uh... gaps essentially. Okay. <laughs> And Harris was like, I don't think any of that matters. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Yes. You know? Hey, that's a lot. So, you know. It's a lot to take in and, right and there. So, right. It's a big difference between, it's also a big difference in question between you as an individual in private, right? Reading uh, Charles Murray or, or Douglas Murray or, you know, any of the racist Murrays. Any of the Murrays. <laughs> there's several, there's two racist Murrays and you have to keep them separate. One of them's old and racist and one of them's young and, and more British and racist. Um, <laughs> you know, like, it's one, th- it's one thing to read that stuff on your own, but if, if it's like you and me and Sam Harris where we have some amount of audience more so than others, um, that like, you have a, a deep moral obligation, I think, to not, uncritically platform that shit to not just like have that on your show and, and not just uncritically, but like treat it as like sacred conventional, you know, like um, um, hidden wisdom or taboo yeah, wisdom yeah. or something mm-hmm, like yeah. that. Like it's extremely inappropriate behavior. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think if you are pers- people like us, you absolutely need to get that content before you, you know, are willing to have somebody on so that you can provide substantial pushback and you have an obligation to provide substantial pushback. Aaron, we're coming to the end here. We just spent a long time talking about some really deep topics. I want to end today by asking you a few questions and I want you to tell me if they're real or not, okay? So I want you to want to do this. You do this on your show (laughs) where you ask people questions and decide whether or not they're real. So I'm going to do this to you here real quick. Um, So now you have to answer whether this is real or not real. Now, what's this segment called on your show? It's called the Enlightening Round. Enlightening Round. So we're stealing this directly from from Embrace the Void. So here we go. we have actually, for the moment, retired the real or not real. We've moved on to the trolley problem version of the enlightening round. So oh. you, are, you are free to use I'm free, I'm free to uh, steal uh, this. Perfect. Oh, that's great. I feel like yeah. we needed a break from the shtick for a little bit. Okay, it, so you know, it might no, come yeah, back well, let's, let's continue we'll, here then. This is yeah. perfect. Yeah, this is exactly what. If you want a joke that's going to die, it's going to come on this show. So here we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We will beat a dead yeah. horse. We will fucking murder, we'll murder a dead horse. horse. <laughs> All right. So, um, so starting out, real or not real, Jonathan Haidt. Not real. Michael Shermer. Not real. Ben Shapiro's wife's dry vagina. <laughs> uh, real. <laughs> <laughs> the intellectual dark web. Um, yeah, I'll go with real. White genocide. <laughs> not real. <laughs> Fucking shit. <laughs> Science Hard fiction. Not real on that one. Science fiction. <laughs> um, Oh, yeah, real. Let's look real. <laughs> that last one blew my brain. Last up. one, like, unstructured play. Not real. 
How do you feel? How does it feel? It feel what? good? How does it I feel, feel good. I feel great. Oh, good, good. How I'm could good. you have genuinely unstructured play? Have you ever watched Because They'll immediately invent a game or a you do this or an I do that or like you run over there and then I'll chase you and some shit. It's very like, true. Very true. Ball. Very true. Aaron, I know this was a long conversation, longer than we had planned. Thank you so much for oh, joining great, us man. today. It was a lot of fun. This is, this is what we call half of a philosopher. This is like half of a philosopher. <laughs> you know, you all are, this, is, this has been great. It's like a warm up. This was fun. This was fun. Thank you. <laughs> we appreciate you coming on. Not too long ago, there was a great earthquake in the CD prefecture. Several towns and villages were devastated. Following the earthquake, a large fault was discovered near the epicenter on the north slope of Amagari Mountain. The fault was deep and several kilometers long. This was the sign of the beginning of the strange incident. I knew I had to go. It was the same with me. It's a real mystery, isn't it? It's a wonder of nature. It's got the entire country, no, the whole world transfixed. Huh? Oh, wait, it must be the others who've come here. What? What are you doing? You look like you're looking for something. I know I saw it somewhere. There are so many holes. So, what's so special about this hole? It was in my shape. It was identical. It was based on me! What are you saying? This hole is yours? I'm not joking! Oh, so you too. I came here to look for my hole. It's unbelievable. Most of us came here for the exact same reason. We're all looking for our holes. And I finally found mine. This is it. You look like you don't believe me. I'll prove it's my hole. Hey, hey, come back! Oh my god. He went in the hole. He's gone. What are we gonna do? Hey, come with me. What is it? I found my hole. What, what about the guy? Just come with me. Look. Look over there. He's just gaping at me. It's my hole. I, I mean, it kind of looks like your hole. Hmm. Oh, this is my hole. It was made for me to enter. It's been waiting for me to enter all that time. It's saying, come into me. <laughs> okay, okay, if you're scared, just watch me. I'll fill this hole up. There, see? Hey, what are you doing? I'm going to have to enter that hole. This is my hole. It was made for me. What are you doing? No, come back. Come back. Come back! Damn. Why did you do it? Why? When you could have just gone to adamandeve.com and used code GLORY, you would have gotten 50% off almost any one item, plus three free gifts and six free spicy movies and free shipping. All when you use code GLORY. Why? Why?
So we want to thank Aaron Rabinowitz for joining us today. We're recording a little early this week uh, and we're not, we didn't live stream this last Thursday and, uh, and we're not recording on Thursday like we normally would. And so you're not hearing a lot of uh, stories that happened during the week uh, because we, we actually are recording pretty much the day the other show released, but we want to thank Aaron Rabinowitz for joining us. Great guy. Uh, really great guy and a really smart guy. We're glad he could take the time to talk about Jonathan Haidt and his article and book, uh, and talk about uh, all the implications of his activity with the intellectual dark web, which we didn't know about. We had so no we're, idea. We're happy that yep. he had an opportunity to explain some of that stuff to us. Um, and uh, and if you want to check out his stuff, you can check out Philosophers in Space or you could check out Embrace the Void. Those are his two podcasts. We'll have links in the show notes. We'll also link to him on the Skeptic UK uh, online magazine, and he is a columnist for them as well. Uh, very smart guy. He's going to be a QED this year. You can catch him at QED. He's going to be giving a conference, uh, a, a key, not a keynote, pardon me. He's going to be giving a, uh, a, a panel discussion on conspiracy theories. And so it's going to be really great. Marsh and he and two other people who I don't remember exactly who's going to be on there, but, uh, but I know for sure Marsh and he are on the same uh, panel and it should be really great. Pro conspiracy, going, weirdly going enough. In. Yeah, I know. I think him and Marsh are actually going to box after it's over. Um, so, uh, but check it out and uh, and check out his, his podcast. He's a really smart guy and he's really fun to talk to. That's going to wrap it up for this week. We're going to leave you like we always do with the Skeptics Creed. Credulity is not a virtue. It's fortune cookie cutter, mommy issue, hypno Babylon bullshit. Couched in scientician, double bubble, toil and trouble, pseudo quasi alternative, acupunctuating, pressurized, stereogram, pyramidal, free energy, healing, water, downward spiral, brain dead pan, sales pitch, late night info docutainment. Leo Pisces, cancer cures, detox, reflex, foot massage, death in towers, tarot cars, psychic healing, crystal balls, Bigfoot, Yeti, aliens, churches, mosques, and synagogues, temples, dragons, giant worms, Atlantis, dolphins, truthers, birthers, witches, wizards, vaccine nuts, shaman healers, evangelists, conspiracy, doublespeak, stigmata, nonsense. Expose your signs. Thrust your hands, bloody, evidential, conclusive. Doubt even this. The opinions and information provided on this podcast are intended for entertainment purposes only. All opinions are solely that of Glory Hole Studios, LLC. Cognitive dissonance makes no representations as to accuracy, completeness, currentness, suitability, or validity of any information and will not be liable for any errors, damages, or butthurt arising from consumption. All information is provided on an as-is basis. No refunds. 
produced in association with the local Dairy Council and viewers like you.